You can hear me. All right, excellent. Um, I, I have had the connection drop a few times, so we'll move quickly toward the sermon. Uh, hopefully the, uh, the Internet will stay stable enough for us to uh, finish through our worship service today. So this morning, uh, Numbers chapter 6, 22 to 27. This is the uh, benediction that we've been uh, looking at a little bit last week focus on more intently this morning. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy and a great deal of help with respect to the Internet this morning, uh, that you would enable us to continue our worship until we have reached its conclusion this morning. Preserve, O Lord God, uh, everything necessary to enable this to happen, but we trust you, uh, your providences, Father, whether they work well for us and sometimes work against us, uh, your calling to us is to trust in you. And so we do. We place our trust in you once again. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, this is the last of the messages that I have prepared in terms of the series on worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Our aim has been to demonstrate one big, huge main idea, that God has redeemed us for the sake of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. That's the big idea. We've been anchoring that main idea in what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where he said to her, but the hour is coming, this would be verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, all through the series, we have been relating each of our biblical elements of worship, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, instruction, to the work of Christ. We've been showing again and again that Christ has redeemed us so that we might fulfill our most essential purpose as human beings, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And last Sunday, we introduced the last element of worship, the benediction. And this morning, we're going to conclude our remarks on the blessing that brings formal worship to a close. As we said last Sunday morning, the first principle of worship is that it's a dialogue between God himself and the worshiper, where God gets the first word and where God gets the last word. And the last word being the benediction, the blessing by which God sends us forth to serve him. Now, I'm in Annapolis this morning, and I got to worship with Drew's parents this morning. And on our way to Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we passed an Anglican church, which I remembered from a prior trip when Julie and I were here one October a number of years ago. This Anglican church on that particular October morning, which was like a Friday morning, uh, the sign advertised what was going to happen this coming Sunday. It was the blessing of the pets Sunday, the blessing of the animals, specifically the blessing of the pets. 
Uh, all the members of that Anglican church were invited to bring their dog, their cat, their parrot, whatever, and a benediction would be said over their animal. Part of the Anglican liturgy, part of the Catholic liturgy, traceable back to Saint, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. Okay. So that, <laughs> I, we drove by there and that hit my mind. Oh, benediction. Wow. Then immediately my mind went to Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, you know, uh, that great musical, early part of the 20th century, when Jews are facing terrible suffering under the czar of imperial Russia, and one of the characters uh, says to the rabbi, Rabbi, is there a proper blessing for the czar? And the rabbi responds, a blessing for the czar? Of course. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. Now, neither of these references to blessings or benedictions are helpful at all in getting to the biblical understanding of what a benediction happens to be. No more helpful than our common cultural politeness when we say bless you whenever somebody sneezes. In some ways, these things, these practices, these ideas have demoted in our own minds and our own ways of thinking the idea of blessing or the idea of benediction as it's grounded in scripture. So part of the burden of last week and continuing this week is to restore to us a biblical understanding of this idea, this, this action of God in which he blesses his people. It is the last word in the worship dialogue. It's the last word in a formal worship setting which carries forth this main idea, this main theme, that when God sends us forth from his presence, that is the presence of worship out into the world, he sends us forth with his blessing, which is to say that we are to go into the world as those who are equipped by the presence of God and by his promise a divine grace. Now, in review, let me just put in a couple of reminders from what we've been looking at. I said last week that of all the New Testament benedictions, the one that perhaps most fulfills the Old Testament uh, benediction of Numbers chapter 6 is what we find in the book of Hebrews. It's printed in your, your it's, it's, we're going to say it at the end of the service, so it's printed in your, your, your uh, service notes. But let me read it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so to be clear about this benediction, it echoes two vital elements of this whole concept of the biblical benediction. God's blessing is from the God of peace, who gives to his redeemed people peace, and that in this blessing from the God of peace, God is actively equipping his people to serve him to the glory of God in Christ. So this morning, we're going to take that close look now at number which points um, And order, I don't know how much you heard of that, if you're still listening, raise your hand maybe, and if you can still hear me, shake your hand. Okay, you can still hear me. All right. So we're going to be looking at these 
uh, ideas in Numbers chapter 6, 22 to 27. Uh, and to do so, three key ideas. First is this. The, the, there's a context to the benediction, so we're going to be looking at the context. Secondly, there's content to the benediction, so we're going to be looking at its content. And then thirdly, there are consequences to the benediction, so we'll be considering those consequences. So, in the first place, the benediction has a context. It's the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament. It's the fourth of the fifth books written by Moses. These five books together are referred to in the rest of the Bible as the, as the law of Moses. Now, the book of Numbers follows Exodus and Leviticus, where God has uh, given to Moses the Old Testament worship system, consisting of three main parts. Uh, the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple, uh, the priesthood, and then the atoning sacrifices. And the New Testament shows abundantly that these three parts of the worship system are types and shadows of Christ himself. That in the tabernacle and the priesthood and in the sacrifices, God is drawing near to his people to remove the barrier of sin and to have fellowship and communion with them. In other words, God redeems his people in order to dwell with him, that they might glorify him and be blessed in his presence. That's the context of this benediction. It's the worship of the holy God in the context of sin. But how does benediction itself actually fit into this worship context? Well, since January, uh, Mr. Fleming has been leading the Monday Night Intersect study group through a fairly recent book by Reformed scholar by the name of Michael Morales, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord?, which is a study in the book of Leviticus. want us to read so that you'll actually see it on the screen. So once again, raise your hand if you hear me and if you're following me and you know where I am in terms of the words that are up on the screen. Okay, so God's presence is never neutral. The result of engaging him must ever be either blessing or judgment. Meeting with God through the way he has opened leads to benediction while approaching Yahweh through a manner he himself has not ordained results in judgment. One reason why this is so is because the unclean cannot come into contact with the holy without being destroyed. The way of Yahweh, therefore, required the blood of atonement and the burning of consecration, that is, cleansing and sanctification, but all for this end of benediction. Cleansing is for the sake of sanctification. Sanctification is for the sake of blessing, found in communion and fellowship with God. Yahweh's way then is then, let me say that again, Yahweh's way is then the way of blessing. Indeed, the divine condescension, seeking a lasting habitation among Israel, the establishment of a way of reconciliation and engagement. All this is for the purpose of blessing his people. The will and purposes of God, the paths and laws of God, 
are for the sake of this benediction. The glory of God is humanity's beatitude. Now, there are a number of tremendously great insights in these remarks by Professor Morales. And I want to note these four that I consider to be very important. First, uh, the biblical truth is this. God's presence is never neutral. It brings either blessing or judgment. Now, as an aside, you have all heard the statement made by non-Christians, by pagans and so forth. Well, uh, it doesn't matter what religion you follow. All paths lead to God. Now, when you hear that, the next time you should say something like this. Um, that's a very important insight. Because that's a very important truth. But the question is, do you understand how far that truth goes? Every path ultimately leads to God. It leads either to God as your Heavenly Father, or it leads to God as your everlasting judge. It's only in Christ that your path will lead to God as your Heavenly Father. Now, so just a thought there about uh, God's presence brings either blessing or it brings judgment. Now, secondly, under the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, uh, that's the Old Covenant, God has opened the way to meeting with him, a way that led to blessing, which is benediction, and not to judgment. So that's what this worship system is all about, God coming to his people. Thirdly, the way that God opened to his presence was the sacrificial system, which symbolized both cleansing and sanctification, all of which we know points ultimately to Christ. And then fourthly, the purpose of all this. Blessing his people. The whole body of worship was as Morales says, for the sake of this benediction. Now, I want to add a second element in terms of context here. And this is the matter of the Israelites' own faith. It was just as true in Old Testament times as it was and is in New Testament times. Uh, exactly what it says in Hebrews 11.6. In fact, what it says in Hebrews 11.6 is with reference to all those Old Testament saints that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. But that verse says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So as we look further at what this benediction means, we see that the blessing itself is addressed to all those, but only those who come to God as believers, as those who've put their faith in the true and living God. There is blessing. Those who come to God in true faith find him to be the God of peace. Those who come to God in unbelief find him to be their Judge. Now, uh, moving on then to the idea of the content. The benediction 
has content. Uh, we look specifically at what God is saying to his people in terms of blessing them. And, and really this content, uh, the content of the blessing speaks to the fullness of what it actually means to be reconciled to God. What makes this so significant in terms of the presence of God is that the benediction is actually addressed to each worshiper individually. It happens in the context of an individual Israelite worshiper bringing a sacrificial animal. The benediction was stated by the priest at that particular part of the worship ritual when the sacrificial animal was slain. Individually. That's what makes this so significant. Now, this shows up more clearly in the King James translation, where we have the singular the instead of the ambiguous uh, you. So let's read that in that form. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Now, to come at the content, we need to look at its form, and then we need to look at the meaning of what is actually said. And the form is given by way of poetry, Hebrew poetry. That's significant. Because when you study the Old Testament, you realize, and scholars have noted this, that the most important things that are expressed in all of the Old Testament are expressed in poetic form. So when people sort of say, well, that's just... Old Testament poetry is not all that important. They've actually inverted the, the reality of what's going on. The most important things that God ever expressed have a highly structured, highly poetic kind of form. And in particular, we find that most Hebrew poetry is uh, structured in terms of parallelism. So you have a statement, you have a parallel statement, a statement, a parallel statement. Now, those parallel statements can go in several directions. Here, the way the parallelism goes is in the direction of what is called progressive. The structure is progressive parallelism. So you have three lines, uh, verse 24, 25, 26. Each one of those lines of poetry uh, is divided into two parts. And so what happens is, is that the first part of each line, verse 24, 25, 26, is, is, is in parallel to the other part. So you've got three lines, two parts, part one, part two, part three in the first half, parallel, and then uh, the second half of verse 24, the second half of verse 25, the second half of verse 26. All of those are in parallel, but there's progression. Each line in the original Hebrew gets longer than the previous one. And the intent of that is to make the blessing move from a statement to its comparative statement to its superlative statement. The idea of moving progressively to make the blessing increasingly emphatic. So we also find repetition. So my aim is repeated three times. That's very significant. Divine name repeated three times. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. We also notice, in terms of repetition, that the idea of God's face is repeated twice. 
In fact, in verse 25, when it says the Lord make his face to shine upon you, in verse 26, uh, most translations have chosen not to translate the word face once again, but in the original Hebrew, it is the word face. So really, the translation of verse 26 is the Lord lift of his face upon you and give you peace. So there's repetition. God's face is emphasized twice. And that represents really the closeness of God's presence. To be face to face with God is to express full reconciliation with God. God has closed the gap between the sinner and a holy God. God has drawn near with his presence to have communion and fellowship with the reconciled and redeemed believer who worships him. Now, that much from the standpoint of the form. Now consider the content. This blessing contains six ideas about what the Lord is doing and what it means. But we need to follow these ideas through in terms of their poetic form once again. So each verse has two parts. Verse 24, the Lord bless thee, first part, second part, and keep thee. Verse 25, first part, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee. Second part, and be gracious unto thee. And then verse 26, the Lord lift up his face upon thee, countenance. And then second part, and give thee peace. So let's look at each one of the first first half, then let's look at the second half. So verse 24, the first part, the Lord bless thee. It's the singular form, which is so significant. It reminds us that the blessing was applied by the priest to individuals as they were finishing their sacrifices. So the Israelite understood that whatever God said in his blessing, whatever he was promising with respect to his people, he was making that promise, he was making that blessing to each one of them personally and individually. So whatever would follow in this benediction, God was promising to the reconciled believer, he was promising this to any true person of true faith. The personal nature of this is so incredibly significant. Then we go on to verse 25, the first line again. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So the blessing is now presented in terms of, of a kind of a poetic analogy, uh, like the sun uh, shining its face favorably upon the earth, so God's face is shining favorably, uh, giving light and life to the reconciled sinner. And then thirdly, uh, progressively develops the previous two ideas. The Lord lift up his countenance, that is lifting up his face upon thee. And this is the same meaning as the previous line, but it's intensified, it's strengthened. When, when someone's face or countenance is lifted up biblically, uh, the idea is that this is in order to have the experience of joy and gladness. So God is lifting up his countenance upon the believer, which means that God is doing so for the purpose of joy and for the purpose of gladness. There's joy and gladness and enjoyment in God as he brings this blessing. Now, this is a very important truth. God is pleased to redeem. 
in order to give the believer joy and gladness. And then the second half of each line, we see three things that this blessing promises and then gives to the reconciled sinner. Verse 24, keep thee. That concept in scripture, if you trace it all the way out, is really a statement of protection from true evil. The blessing is that God will keep you. He will protect you from that which is ultimately and truly evil. Uh, you know, they, they saw this in terms of Psalm 121, verse 4. Uh, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleep. All reconciled sinners are kept and protected by the power of God from all evil that would truly uh, harm them. Verse 25, be gracious unto thee. Uh, this is the pardon of sin. The blessing is that God will be gracious to you. Rather than judging you, God is gracious to you. He fully accepts the blood sacrifice in the sinner's place. He fully accepts the atonement. The guilt is expiated. God's wrath is propitiated. The sinner is reconciled. God is gracious to the sinner. And verse 26, and give thee peace. The blessing is that God will give his peace to you, the sinful human being. And Perhaps we know and understand that this word peace, shalom in the Hebrew, uh, captures in, in one particular word the fullest sense of God's deepest work of redemption in a broken world. It's not simply the absence of conflict, but peace refers to a fully restored relationship in which the believer, as a worshiper, flourishes in his or her relationship with God. The idea of peace always means the right kind of relational harmony and well-being between God and the believer. And as we saw in the message last week, this benediction is gravitationally connected to the messianic promise that is given in Scripture, in which the Old Testament increasingly gives the idea of peace this larger and larger vision that when the Messiah comes into the world, he is going to usher in a transformed world in which now there's going to be harmony in every kind of relationship that exists between God and man, between God, uh, between man and nature, between man and others, between man and himself. Everything is going to be brought into the most perfect and wonderful uh, uh, shalom, this great vision. It's why the Messiah himself then is titled, Isaiah 9, verse 7, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this idea shows up then in the benediction that the angels give to the shepherds on the night that Jesus is born. Glory to God in the highest, Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Now, finally, the consequences. The benediction, uh, as, as God gives it to Moses, as Moses gives it to the, the priests of Aaron, as they're to give it to the people of God, the benediction has consequences. Uh, we need to emphasize again what we noticed in last Sunday's message. God's benedictions are what can be called 
performative speech acts. That what God speaks, God actually calls into reality. When he blesses, it will certainly come to pass. There are always consequences, good consequences, to God's benedictions. Now in verse 27, uh, there we have stated the primary consequence of this blessing. For God says, So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The priest, under the instruction of God, the priests were putting the name of God on each of them. But what does that mean? Well, in biblical terms, this was God stating a claim upon the worshiper, stating his actual ownership of those who were worshiping him in this way. God places his name upon the people of Israel as the claim that they are his, that they belong to him. In fact, because of what God says to the Israelites at the time of the Exodus, God is claiming the Israelites as his prized possession. So when God brings the children of Israel after the Exodus to Mount Sinai, right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, uh, he says this, Exodus 19, uh, 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, notice the language. Notice how God describes the children of Israel. To those that he brings near to himself, to those who will keep his covenant, meaning those who will walk in true faith and faithfulness, because we know there are always tares among the wheat, there are always the faults among the true, but to those who will uh, walk with God in true faith and faithfulness, God's word addresses them as those who will keep the covenant. God says that they will be his treasured possession. They shall be a kingdom of priests. They shall be a holy nation. They shall have God's name on them. God claims them as his treasured possession. God places the name upon them as his claim of ownership. Now, this ownership claim by God, even this language to describe this ownership, is taken up in the New Testament. And it's applied to believers in Christ. It's applied to the whole body of Christ. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, notice these words. Think about the Old Testament context. Think about a people for his own possession. Think about the benediction being a way in which God says, put my name, my mark of ownership upon 
that this similar kind of language similar kind of language shows up in the doxology at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. So when you turn to Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, the second half, where the, the doxology goes this way, and to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have the language that we find in Exodus 19. The language, similar language, picked up in 1 Peter 2.9. Language again used here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, speaking of what Christ has done. We find that kind of language repeated then in chapter 5. Here we have the angelic host, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, singing about Christ and his worthiness to open the scroll. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. There again, the the whole idea being that uh, God rescued his people out of Egypt. God has rescued his people from sin by the blood of Christ so that they can be this kingdom and priests to serve God, to reign upon the earth, to be everything that God has called them to be, to be supremely blessed by God. So then we come to the climax of Revelation. We come to chapter 22. Uh, we come to the place where the new heavens and the new earth are described, verses 3 through 5, where we read this. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see, note this, they will see his face. That's the benediction out of Numbers chapter 6. That's an echo of that benediction. And his name will be on their foreheads. And that's an echo of verse 27 in Numbers chapter 6. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, the point here is all about consequences. The point of the benediction is that it truly delivers on what it promises. The words of the blessing are truly performed by God in the life of the believer, but in the life of the whole church, in the life of redeemed. God blesses us personally, individually, when he brings his presence to us in Christ. God has blessed to keep us eternally secure in Christ. God shines his holy face upon us in Christ by being gracious to us and forgiving us all of our sins through the sacrifice of his son. And God becomes to us the God of peace who claims us as his own treasured 
possession, who puts his name upon us, that we will be his forever. And at the same time, as the God of peace, God works in us to equip us for everything good that we need to do for the sake of his glory in Christ. The benediction of God sends us forth equipped to do his holy will, to live the life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So, as we conclude, let me return to the most important thing that Professor Morales has said about the whole body of worship, the whole system of worship under the law of Moses, namely, that it was for the sake of this benediction. In other words, God reconciles us to himself in order to bless us. And that has never changed. The Father sent his Son into the world to die in our place, to take the judgment of God's justice and wrath upon himself so that we might in Christ receive God's blessing instead of the penalty of an everlasting hell. The writer Oswald Chambers is most, is probably most famous for his devotional book, uh, which is entitled My Utmost for His Highest. As a young Christian, this book, and especially its title, uh, took hold of my heart. It made me desire to give my all for the sake of Christ. But perhaps some 20 years into my adult Christian life, it, it dawned upon me rather deeply there's only one reason why there was in me this desire that I would give my utmost for God's highest. And it was because God had given his utmost, his only begotten son, for my highest. Christ went to the cross that I might be eternally blessed. God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all that you and I might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. God's blessing is God's good news. Amen. Our God and Father, we, we pray that we can understand this, that you might fill our days with your presence in such a way that we might know joy and gladness because you have supremely blessed us in Christ. And that might always cause us to, to love you, to be in awe of you, uh, to appreciate the, the deepest gratitude for all that you've done for us, knowing that uh, what we know of you now, what we possess already, is hardly to be compared with all of the glory that is yet to be revealed to us when Jesus returns. We praise you and we do thank you. In Christ's name, amen.